Welcome to the Turquoise Coconut Podcast. In the first episode, we're talking to jazz pianist and composer Kate Williams. between your trio and uh, a string quartet. You said on a few occasions that it's a bit of a dream lineup for you. What is it about writing for for this group that's so inspiring? Well, I've always wanted to um, write for strings, so that is a big part of it. Also, the idea of having two bands which are complete within themselves, which then join together to, to make up a larger group. And also just just working with with other musicians who I really admire and respect and get on with as people, um, putting all of that together makes it a bit of a, a dream project for me. That goes back to you saying um, that you usually would write for players rather than instruments. So <clears throat> yes, you've got you've had long associations with certain people in London and outside. Uh, so yeah, how is it? definitely. Um, obviously, I can't I can't speak for other composers, but it seems to be a large part of how I write is that ideas seem to come more easily if I have a musician's particular sound in in my head, rather than just having to, I suppose, compose for a, a theoretical lineup of anonymous players, I think I would find that more difficult. Is there anyone particular that comes to mind? Somebody that you, um, you've written for? On well, I mean, I've done, obviously, like my quartet, quintet and septet, which has featured um, flautist Gareth Lacrane um, for, for several years now. Um, so, yeah, Gareth is someone that I've, um, I guess, written a, a lot of tunes with, with his sound in, in mind. And you feel like that that's shaped sort of the way you've written on those? The composition process is quite a, it's quite a curious one and I don't fully understand how it works. I don't, I mean, I don't have a process. Well, what what um, are some processes I'm not, that you might, um, you might go through? I mean, I write at the, at the piano. Occasionally I might hear an idea when I'm away from the piano, but usually it's as a result, you know, ideas will come as a result of playing. It might be when I'm playing through a standard or playing through a, a different piece altogether that I'll then think of an idea. A lot of tunes that I've written seem to grow out of one initial small idea and then it's almost like kind of digging around inside your brain without being too graphic, trying to 
find the ideas that you know match the idea that you've already got because they're in there somewhere but you've kind of got to get at them it's like if you think of an initial idea and then you you sort of go through a process of trying out loads of other ideas that will work as the continuation of that idea and sometimes you have to go through a load of stuff and put lots of stuff in the bin I don't literally throw things in the bin but like you know discard a lot of information or or music that isn't quite working or you don't feel it's quite right and then you kind of know kind of know when I've got the what what I hear as being the right thing to continue that idea and the only the only analogy I could that springs to mind which is uh I play a bit of table tennis um, but I've got a, l- a lousy backhand, right? But my brother is a very good table tennis player. And a few years ago, he was trying to teach me how to do a, a, a backhand top spin return. And I wasn't very good. And we were, we were practicing this loads and loads and loads. Most of the shots were not quite right. They were almost right. But every time I did a shot that was exactly the right movement, I knew it immediately. <laughs> I know this seems very unrelated, but it's a little. It can be a little bit like that with composing. You've thought of an initial idea, and you think, yes, that's an idea for a tune, and you build it into something else, and then you can't quite think how to complete what you've written. And you go through all these things, most of which don't feel quite right, but they could sort of work. And then you hit on the one that there's almost an inevitability about it that you think, yeah, that is definitely what makes sense with that. In the same way that the the one in ten backhand shots when I was playing table tennis might be the one that felt right. The kind of initial idea you might have, are you do you sort of prefer to play around with harmonic ideas or melodic, or even a lot of your pieces have unusual rhythmic shapes. You know, either um, odd time signatures or strange phrase lengths. You know, you've, you've written a few things with eleven bars or. Yeah, the, the the odd phrase lengths are there because they felt the most natural as opposed to... I, I, I wouldn't sort of deliberately set out to yeah. compose an 11-bar phrase, but if that's the way it feels the most natural, then I would leave it like that. I suppose being a piano player, it's it's often a the harmony which will, will drive it in terms of the, the initial idea might be something fairly chordal because I can remember obviously I can't remember how I felt at the beginning of each tune that I wrote and what was going on in my head because you kind of tend to forget but Elements of Five which is the first track on my quintet album I remember very specifically that the opening of that which is kind of over so it's a chordal thing on an E flat pedal everything about that tune developed out of that initial kind of phrase which was a, a sort of harmonic phrase left hand sort of two-handed piano thing um and actually funnily enough funny you should mention odd phrase lengths because the the phrase lengths of five bars so they're sort of double example of something in that tune
Actually, that's an interesting one because that's got quite a, a a long evolutionary thread in terms of where it was, where it came from. As you all remember, when we when we did the um, Bill Evans and the Impressionists concert, I found um, and arranged Bill Evans's tune, twelve tone tune. Actually, there weren't any strings in it, were there? At the time on that no, tune, that was uh, yeah, it was woodwind. Slightly medieval sounding, as far as I remember. It was like woodwind and piano trio. And I arranged Bill Evans's tune, 12-tone tune, which I think is more or less a tone row in the actual melody, from what I remember. The intro to it was a drum feature. There was a trio bit first. Whatever it was, I it expanded upon and wrote a different section to Bill Evans's 12-tone um, tune. And I called that at the time, I called that part of it 12 tonal because it was obviously connected to the original Bill tune. Then when it came to doing the 4 plus 3 album, I took the intro part, the 12 tonal part that I had uh, written as an intro to Bill Evans's 12 tone tune and thought actually that on its own could be the beginning of a, a different tune. So I took that intro, I wrote a different string section which then went over those chords. So it kind of evolved from being the intro to, to a non-original tune to being an original tune in itself. tunes you're willing to go back to things and sort of work on them until well oh yeah I, mean, I, wouldn't, <clears throat> I didn't I didn't mind no no that wasn't wasn't a problem thinking oh, I could make something I've done I've done that before with with tunes where think of an example tunes where I thought oh this isn't this doesn't really work and then I've actually rewritten it and made it better you know I, mean, I have got I've got like a a big folder of uh, discarded stuff, but I would never throw it away because you don't actually know when you might come back to one small part of that and reuse it for something else. I'm not very, I wouldn't say I'm very, I, I mind a lot about it, but I wouldn't say I'm very precious about composition or my compositions. Talking about Bill Evans, you've mentioned, yeah. it would be difficult for a jazz pianist not to have been influenced by him in in one way or another. I think I've heard you say he has been a big influence on your playing. I mean, it's quite hard to quantify in what way someone has influenced you. Maybe it's easier to say that it's someone that you've... It's someone that you've admired and listened to and absorbed a lot over the years. But in terms of how that influence manifests itself, I almost it's not really for me to say in some way because I can, I can tell you certain things that strike me about Bill's playing that's that strike a chord with me but that doesn't necessarily mean that I can do those things much though I'd like to the first time I heard Bill Evans it wasn't an immediate and I would be honest about this that it wasn't an immediate um impact that he had 
You remember what, what it I was? I can remember the album, and it's now one of my favourite yeah. Bill albums. I think I just didn't understand, and maybe I just wasn't, you know, and people are receptive to different musical sort of influences at different times. I must have been about um, 18 years old, I guess. And I bought the album. I think someone had sort of said, oh, you know, check out Bill Evans. I, I didn't play jazz at that time. I was, I, mean, I, I was still doing my classical grades. You know, I was quite behind in some, not behind, but, but a sort of a slow starter at the piano in some way. So it probably would have been when I was, working towards doing my grade eight piano and someone had said, oh, you know, check out some Bill Evans. And I bought a vinyl uh, version of New Jazz Conceptions. There are a few standards on there that that I'd sort of heard before. And I, when I put them on, I think I just, it was so, it, it was so different from anything I'd heard before. I just didn't quite get it in, in some sort of way. And I, I don't really know why other than I just didn't quite understand what was going on or or what obviously that changed over the next few years that changed quite quickly as I listened to other stuff by Bill and then I came back to that album and realized wow this is this is amazing harmony and and amazing time feel amazing what what he's doing in terms of the way he actually you know plays with a piano trio I probably hardly heard any piano trios playing in jazz by that time actually so I probably couldn't appreciate what he was doing in that way also, I mean, I suppose the the other things that I then went on to appreciate about his playing would have been the his compositions and, in a big way, his his actual piano sound, you know, the the actual tone. When I I don't know, it, sometimes when piano is taught, in jazz piano is taught, that that there's sometimes not quite enough emphasis on tone, and sound. All the kind of great piano players all have their own sound, their own very particular tone. I don't mean their own sound in terms of the actual notes they play, although that they do have that as well. Or in terms of their swing feel or, or rhythmic feel, they have that as well. But it is in the actual sound, if you and particularly with Bill Evans, I think in a lot of cases you can hear just one chord and you know that it's him playing. Now what what is that that gives it that very special thing that you know you could get someone else to play exactly the same chord and it will not sound like Bill Evans. So that that is definitely one of the things that kind of has stayed with me. That's sort of perhaps endemic to the ongoing argument about jazz education. Jazz education being maybe still quite a recent phenomenon in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. You know, when people like Bill Evans and, and Miles Davis and John Coltrane were coming up, they weren't studying at an institute. There wasn't such a thing. And they were just experimenting, learning from each other and also kind of pushing their own conception of music. And mm. Nowadays, of course, we go to jazz school and you learn the history from somebody else and you maybe explore the records and then you also you learn your scales and you learn how to mm. play it with changes and perhaps you know, some would argue that a certain amount of what you're talking about the sound the sound of a person coming through and they're playing is is perhaps been sacrificed in the name of you know technical understanding and ability if you think what how things were were say in the 1950s or in the late 50s or 40s even you would learn on the job so to speak. I mean, that's not to say musicians didn't have training. I mean, Bill, Bill Evans was classically trained. A lot of the, a lot of the piano players have, have had classical training, but they didn't go to a jazz college 
to learn, you know, how to transcribe solos. They would have, as you say, they would have learned that sort of directly from source. And that's what, I guess that's what's different now. It's a, it's a curious position now because in one way we've got access to more information than we've ever had just compared to when I was at college, the difference now that you can look up almost any recording of any musician and hear it like in, in a couple of seconds in one way must be a good thing. But are we in, in a way that are we bombarded? And this is probably information in general does this. Are we bombarded by so much information that we don't focus for as long on any one thing? because there's we've got access to everything if that wasn't there and you could only and you couldn't download it on your phone and all you could do was just go and buy a few cds you'd probably learn a lot wouldn't you from those few recordings that you had you'd kind of does it does it do does it do something to the value of the information when there is so much of it around i don't know the answer really how do you feel about particularly in London, for example, about the, the quality of the, the current scene? You know, do you feel in any way like it's not as progressive as it was, perhaps? No, I think, the, I think the scene is healthy in terms of there's a lot of really talented musicians playing in all different styles, you know what I mean, from straight ahead to doing original stuff. And, you know, I think, there's, I think the actual scene is, is strong musically. I'm not, I'm not so sure that the foundations culturally upon which it sits are so strong I mean in terms of the infrastructure for arts and things I, I don't know but that's that's part of a bigger political point really of where where we are where Britain is and then then where Europe is and then where the, where the world is I mean, it depends how far you want to take it we're, we're in quite I'd say we're in quite we, we live in maybe maybe anyone would say this at any point in history but I feel that we live in quite strange and uncertain times no one's quite sure I mean actually can I mention Brexit yeah I mean uh, what does that you know just that on its own has kind of created a a degree of well a big degree of uncertainty feels a little bit like no no one really knows what's going to happen and even before that we didn't know that much what was going to happen it's sort of we're floating around in this strange sea of not knowing we don't know what it means for the artistic community, even. It's the for me, it's the antithesis of what music is about. Putting up, you know, talk it talking about um, putting up borders to stop immigration and stopping certain people from travelling to from A to B, and we can't have these people, and we'll accept these people, but not those. All that, everything that goes with that attitude for me is the opposite of what music is about. Which is like the I know it sounds like a terrible cliche, but it is the international language. You don't, you know, you can speak a totally different language, but you can still relate to a culture through hearing its music. And part of the health of that scene is that musicians should be able to travel around the world and make music together. So the idea of kind of limiting the number of whoever, Europeans, non-Europeans, who come here just seems um, completely insane to me. When you were 18, you, you got the Bill Evans record and mm. you were still playing classical piano. Mm. So you, you, you came into music through... My mum is a very good classical pianist. She used to teach piano from home. Actually, one of my earliest memories, when I was probably about only two, 
My dad, I think, was away working, performing. And my mum was teaching piano at home. And obviously she was having to look after me as well. And she used to occasionally let me just sit and listen in the corner while she was doing the piano lesson, as long as I was good and as long as I was quiet. And there was one time I really wanted to join in. And she was giving this piano lesson, some poor student sitting there playing their bark or whatever. And I was sitting there and I could see the top notes on the piano and I just, I wanted to, you know, have a go as well. And so I kind of crept over and started playing and she very kind of firmly said, no, you you want to stay here, you, you, know, you have to sit quietly and, and working, so-and-so's lesson. And well, I did, but then, of course, the temptation grew too much again. And I was, like, running up to the piano. And, and unfortunately, I, I, she had to uh, take me out of the room and put me in my cot. That's an indication of how small I was. So that's one of my earliest musical experiences that I can remember. After that time, she did actually teach me to read music, both clefs. So... Even when I was quite small, I kind of knew enough to read music, but it was it was never going to work as a as a formal series of lessons, shall we say? I think like learning with a with a parent, it would you know I was quite a stubborn child. And when I was about six, I think I was about six, I asked my parents if I could learn the cello. I think they were very aware because they were both musicians they were very aware that they didn't want to kind of force me to learn an instrument just because they did so initially when I asked could I learn the cello they were they rather than like oh great let's push her onto the cello they were kind of almost the opposite they were like are you really sure you don't have to are you really you know of course you can but are you really sure you want to learn an instrument which I was I was really going to you know like as a child going to orchestral rehearsals with either one of my parents sitting there with my drawing book and drawing pictures of the players I think I'd, I'd probably done something like drawn a picture of the cellist and thought that was really cool it's probably why I wanted to why I chose the cello anyway so I did I had lessons when I was from when I was about six until the age of 12 I didn't do any grades I wasn't really particularly interested in doing grades I just sort of played it because I liked it and then when I was about 12 I just kind of lost interest in it I can't really can't really put my finger on why I think I just became a stroppy teenager and and sort of stopped practicing and then my dad sort of said look you know you should you should only do something because you want to do it and and if you're not interested in it don't feel you have to do it but if you're going to do it do it do it properly otherwise maybe it's time to take a break sort of thing that, that was a huge relief because I obviously didn't want to practice, so I, I stopped. When I was 15, I went to hear Ian Jury and the Blockheads at the Sobel Sports Centre in Islington. And he always had a fantastic band and I was like really into it. It was like one of the first gigs I'd ever been to. And I went out then and bought the album New Boots and Panties, which I still have. I remember starting to like work out some of the chords on the piano just for fun really so that, I think that might have been the start of my kind of journey back towards the piano towards kind of taking it a bit more seriously that would have been I'd have been 15 that's right and then then it came to O level GCSE time and I decided to do music and there was a performance option I just chose the piano I don't know I was drawn to the piano and I, I had some more for, sort of some formal lessons really with a wonderful teacher who I'm still in touch with, actually. She was a colleague of my um, mum's. They were both teaching in the same school. 
fantastic. She's actually a harpsichordist called Claire Sutherland. She now lives in Scotland. And she was the most enthusiastic teacher you could hope for. Um, I mean, she she had a special interest in in Baroque music, being a harpsichordist, so we did loads of Bach. But she was just, she did a lot, actually, to, to really enthuse me. You know, I think I think I really fell for the piano and it was a lot due to, to Claire's kind of infectious energy. So I did that. I did the O-level music and then there's the A-level thing. I went to sixth form college, decided to do music for that. I started to think about university and what I maybe would want to do, you know, decided to do music. I kind of crammed crammed grades six, seven and eight into the those two years and just like worked actually really very hard because I hadn't done it's not like I'd had a long build up of of training to do that. So it was like actually quite hard work to kind of get to that level so that I could then apply to university and and do go as a performer to do that, to do classical piano. Then fast forward a few years, went to the University of East Anglia to do to do music, which was a classical course. But I did a, a sort of majored in performance, but I also did um, composition as well. There was no jazz on the course, but uh, nevertheless, I, I I think a lot of the things that I learned there have, have probably informed me, kept me informed, if you like, to this day. But there is there is a, a thread of jazz just going back, which I should mention um which is that my paternal grandfather len williams who's long gone now unfortunately um he was like both a classical guitarist but he was also a jazz guitarist and a jazz pianist during the 1930s so i had heard you know he'd played me when i was about probably when i was about 15 actually around that time when i was getting interested in the piano classically he'd he'd sort of sometimes he'd sit down and play kind of old style sort of stride at the piano and, and play some of the old standards and he also had some fat swaller and duke ellington records i seem to remember and i think he'd said at the time oh why don't you why don't you learn to play jazz and at, at that time i didn't really see how i couldn't see a way into it i couldn't understand how i would i did start trying to kind of mess around with chords but i didn't really understand enough to be able to even teach myself, not not at that age. It's a shame because he died when I was about um, 18 or 19, so he would never have known that I ended up doing jazz gigs and stuff, which is a bit sad. But I think at least it had kind of sown a seed of what what was out there. While I was at UEA, I did um, get to know some some of the older, like sort of old school, actually, sort of old older generation jazz musicians who were in around Norwich at the time. Three musicians in particular that I met while I was there. One was a, a great bass player um, who became an old friend. He's None of these people are around anymore, unfortunately. Um, a man called Mike Harris. He used to come round and teach jazz harmony to myself and to Pete and to Julian Siegel as well, which was good. I suppose that was like one of my first sort of jazz lessons. But more, more invaluable than that was actually um, starting to do a few gigs with Mike on bass. And I hardly knew any tunes and he would just shout out the chords and I'd have to remember them. And it, like that was the the best, you know, and I can say without a doubt that any of the tunes that, that I learned at that time in that way have been the ones that I've remembered really, really well. Who else was there? Then there was the great um, Jack Parnell, 
who was quite old back then and he used to play like there was a resident trio in one of the kind of main jazz gigs in Norwich and the, the resident trio consisted of Mike Harris on bass Jack Parnell on drums and a piano player vibes player as well called Mike Capucci and that was kind of the trio so I used to go and listen to them loads and they'd do kind of Bill Evans tunes or standard tunes but with Bill Evans changes Bill Evans's changes in and stuff so those few years I think were quite quite important in terms of the jazz and how I moved in that direction really I then went on and and did the the Guildhall postgrad and I'm very glad that I did that after having done the learning it uh, I suppose you could call it the learning it from source part and to do it in that order was was really good I think just occurs to me maybe that the, the the learning from source part, which sounds like it was very important in a formative way for you, is perhaps yeah. something that's difficult to get access to as a young player these days. Maybe. Well, it's very difficult because I think um, also, I mean, because we at that time were out of London. I mean, by the time we left Norwich, we were we were doing several gigs and we were doing a lot of gigs because there weren't that many players and there happened to be quite a lot of work around. So we were getting the experience we needed by actually playing. And I think, I'm not saying there's not gigs around now, and there, there are, there's plenty of gigs, but there's even more, proportionally even more musicians. And I think, I don't think there's probably many musicians around who have too much work. I think it would be more likely to be the other way around. And therefore getting that experience in a practical way can be difficult. I mean, sometimes you have to generate it yourself. What advice would you give to musicians who are you know, struggling to find opportunities to learn from the next generation? I mean, one thing I suppose would be just make sure, I mean, it's obviously everyone needs to practice on their own and do all the groundwork and stuff, but, but get out and somehow play with other people as much as you can. So even if it's just a rehearsal. Yeah, even in, not, not in a professional. It doesn't even have to, it doesn't have to be on a gig, but it just... Um, Try and find, I guess, just try and find some like-minded musicians and then get together and, and work on some tunes together or learn some tunes that you don't know already. I mean, that's the other thing. Just mm. learn what you don't know. Or, sorry, practice what you don't know, rather. In terms of the other generation thing, I don't know what you do about that other than like to get out and see live players as much as you can. I'm really grateful that I've I've heard, like, for example... You know, when you get great American bands visiting, that, that you go and go and hear them. I mean, I, I know he's no longer around, but I heard the great Cedar Walton many times at, at, at Ronnie Scott's. What's your grand plan? I don't have a grand plan as such. Um, the current, uh, the 4 Plus 3 project is something that, that I envisage as, as continuing rather than being, I don't, I certainly don't see it as a, oh, we've done the album, that's that for that, you know, something that I want to continue and expand on. And really the next thing is to bring in different guests. So that process is already, the, the process of expansion is, uh, has already started. And then um, next year, 2017, we're, we're uh, planning on, doing a couple of gigs with um, great vocalist, lyricist, um, Georgia Mancio, who I've worked with on and off for, for several years. She and I are going to be um, collaborating, writing some new tunes together, and she's going to be doing the lyrics. And that will be arranged for 4 Plus 3.
Turquoise Coconut is a London-based independent record label. For information about releases, videos, collaborations and more, go to turquoisecoconut.com or find us on Facebook. Turquoise Coconut – new music for curious ears.